Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Movies. On the docket today is Zack Kreger's Barbarian. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah? This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. What am I supposed to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots. Why don't you just crash here? Oh, no. I don't know if you got a great look at this neighborhood, but I don't think you should be out there by yourself. It's dry and there's a lock on the door. By the way, I'm Keith. Tess. You take the bedroom and I'll sleep out here on the couch. Barbarian is a horror movie directed and written by Zach Kreger, whose previous uh, credits include stuff like being an actor on The Widest Kids You Know and co-directing the film Miss March. Wake up! Ah, what is going on? You fell down the stairs after prom and we're in a coma for four years. How come just you're here? Where's Cindy? Right there. Oh my God. This is true love speaking, Eugene, and it's telling us to go to the Playboy Mansion. Think you could do it? I could try. Yes! That's the spirit. Ah! Yeah. He's a horror director now. Uh, the story follows a woman played by Georgina Campbell who rents an Airbnb for a week in Detroit, shows up in the middle of the night, it's pouring rain, and the instructions that are on the app to get the key to get in the house, she opens the little box, there's no key there. So she's like, fuck. Then she hears somebody rumbling inside, The per knocks on the door, the guy opens the door, it's Bill Skarsgård, the guy who played uh, Pennywise in It, tall and lanky as hell turns out the airbnb place double booked and so she has this choice of like well do i stay in the house that i double booked or do i try to find a hotel or whatever ultimately decides to stay in the house with this guy there's already this sort of uneven tension because she's a single lady and he's a stranger and she doesn't really know whether he can trust him or not and when these two are in this house let's just say shit goes south if you've heard anything about this movie, you know or you've heard from people that, look, you want to go into this knowing as little as possible. You don't want to know anything. And that is paramount to what I'm going to be doing here. I know this is a movie that's already old, or old in the sense that it came out in September last year. So I am going to do a spoiler section. But for the sake of those who, for some reason, need to hear the wise opinion of Daniel Berrios before I go see a movie, then, yeah, 
I'm going to go non-spoilers and try to talk about this as vaguely as possible, but I will let you know when the spoilers are coming. The description has the time code in it. I'll put the time code in in post so you can hear me tell you, hey, motherfuckers, like this is when you need to click to. If you're driving, just you know, turn off the episode right now. But I'm going to kind of just go into it. The thing that I like about Barbarian, a lot of it reminds me of something like a Stephen King novel in the way that it takes a really simple premise. You could take the logline of this movie and just, it's a woman going to the Airbnb from hell. Very simple concept. And what this movie does so well is flesh that story out, give it some great character work, and the narrative structure of something like this, which is normally pretty straightforward, I like that you could take the individual pieces that would make something like this, like the intro, the intro to another character, the moment when shit goes awry, you know, developments, developments, and the way the ending works out, blah, blah, blah. You could put all of that into a basic screenplay, but what Krager does is shuffle some of the pieces around in time condense some things that we as horror fans are used to, you know, just experiencing straightforward. I mean, if you're somebody that's a Tubi gremlin like me and is just scrolling through whatever stuff you can grab for free, then you're kind of aware of a lot of these narrative structures and how these things are presented. But Kreger, like, will take a sequence that in another movie would be like 10 minutes long and shoots it down to like three really kind of bare bones stuff and i like the way that kind of balances out it always kind of keeps me guessing as to you know what's coming next and i feel so much of this felt like a really good novel to me that whenever i'm seeing this actress go through and try to figure things out and in a way experiment see like what is going on in this place when it's not going on here. That kind of stuff really, really, really works for me. And as a result, just the way this thing plays out is a constant, it reminds me of like a carpet unfurling its sick, twisted, depraved tail. Uh, I will say as far as anybody who isn't a full-blown horror fan, this is efficiently gory. Meaning that the gore doesn't happen throughout the whole movie, but when it happens, it fucking goes for gonzo. And it will, it is gnarly. There are limbs, there's chunks, and you know, body parts are coming. You know, and that's, it's heavy shit. So if you're averse to that kind of stuff, I will say that it isn't reliant on it. The movie doesn't rely on shock necessarily in that sense. It's more. Just that sinking feeling of disturbia. And when you find out that things are going bad, your initial reaction, and I think the way Krager plays it too is perfectly, where they'll show you just like an endless corridor of darkness. And in your heart of hearts, you're sitting there like, man, fuck that shit, I'm out. And it's that level of how far can we go to what extent does the horror reach is what this movie's all about. It's, con again, unfurling the reveal and, like, adding little pieces here and there to make you go, okay, 
I'm still with it. I gotta follow. And this is one of those movies where if it were just kind of like an odyssey through hell, it would be a barrage for a lot of people. But I found that there's a great balance of humor that immediately kind of reframes something that if you had stayed with it for about 30 minutes straight would be too much for some folks. But I think that break is necessary and it recontextualizes some scenes. So I really like the way that this movie knows that this kind of material can be really troubling and are reframing it in sort of like black tooth grinned ways. Super fun. Uh, I liked Regina Campbell as a final girl a lot. There's some things that she does, it's, it's really dumb, but I think the more I think about her character, it's starting to make more sense for me. There's definitely a part of it that kind of breaks my suspension of disbelief. Like, you being... A single black woman should not be hanging out in this house this long. But I guess without her, we really wouldn't have a movie now, would we? So I'm just like, okay. And, and I didn't want to do the whole like, oh, it's black people. So they know to get out of the house immediately. So no, there is definitely character-based reasons as to why she's hanging out and why she's uh, sticking with it, even through all the craziness. And that exploration led to more thematic stuff like uh, what it's like to go through abuse and the surroundings of the community that she's in. It reminded me a lot of another sort of Detroit-based movie, It Follows, and the way that the architecture showcased the decay of the old world as sort of being bulldozed and forgotten by the new. And this movie does that in some ways, too in a ways that I found myself weren't just kind of like throwaway ideas that they really were layered into this whole piece. And it made me think about just the nature of communities and how, you know, what makes kind of the homes that we live in are the stories and the people within them that they cannot be just, you know, eradicated by time and the weathering of you know the structures that hold them. In a way, it reminds me of that one movie, Landlocked, that I covered uh, earlier, uh, I think last month or maybe in January, where, yeah, that movie was about the, sort of the environment that you live in and the stories that took place, kind of keeping that spirit alive. It just so happens that this particular spirit is stupidly fucked up. <laughs> the stories that went on here, motherfucker, whew. So uh, I like the way she kind of navigates. Whenever she does get to go into like real final girl mode, I do like her. She's one of those characters that's always just super perceptive of what's going on and is quickly adaptable. She's very much somebody that has the ability to, uh, essentially when it plays with the question, adapt or die, she will adapt to the scenario and does so with a plum. Uh, Bill Skarsgård is just one of those dudes that no matter what you cast him in, if you know that he's Pennywise the Clown, he's going to kind of weird you out at first. And I like the casting of him in this. And I like the way he carries himself uh, as submissively as possible, but he's gigantic, so it never quite works. And I'm always on tension when he's on screen. So Bill Skarsgård is just a naturally gifted actor, knows how to kind of navigate through a scene 
and knows what his uh he it's almost like he knows how the camera is going to perceive him so he kind of moves himself in the opposite direction it's really cool shit uh, if we're going to talk about the camera work i thought there was a lot of uh, point of view shots that were really rad sort of whenever it gets really horror based it's like frenetic and crazy and like you'll see a character hold their arms out and uh holding like a weapon and a flashlight and the camera's kind of shaking it looks like it's mounted on them at one point and it gave me that sort of pov feeling of playing like doom the video game and that was really uh that was fun it's just additional little things that this uh this director, Kreger, he'll load the frame with a lot of detail, but know exactly how to pick the things out that you absolutely need to focus on. There's definitely some stuff in the background you can pay attention to, and it feels like Easter eggs because they will sort of reveal the story as time goes on. But I don't know. There's something about being able to really load the frame, like front, gr foreground and background and different colors and just different uh, elements moving within the frame so it kind of keeps your eye moving and wandering but also at the same time you know the, where the story is it's not a michael bay thing at its worst where it can be super confusing again another thing that kind of while taking a similar approach to it follows resembles uh i mean it's not the same thing it follows had more like spare cinematography and there's a lot of like big there's a lot of room in those shots and the few elements that you saw, your eye just immediately hooked onto because you're paranoid as to what's going on. In this one, it's an opposite approach, but I do like the way that they're both able to kind of tell the story while specifically throwing the audience off. A lot of different light sources in this. Uh, there'll be extended sequences with a flashlight that kind of make like a strobe effect that I thought was really neat. Uh, just... A lot of stuff that they're trying out. This isn't the biggest movie in the world. I mean, it's released by Warner Brothers and Regency, and it has, you know, a decent distributor and, like, good producers. You can tell it's well-produced. But there's a lot of techniques that they try, different sequences that are, you know, there's some of it that kind of looks like something out of an Eli Roth movie and something of parts of it that look like really Technicolor, like uh, Pleasantville on steroids. Like, it's really... It's really, really, really good stuff, but I think I'm beating around the bush a little too much, so I am going to go into spoilers now, and to present the moment when you can come back from the spoiler section, here is Daniel Berrios from The Future. Hi, buddies. It's Daniel from The Future, and the spoiler section stops at 43 minutes and five seconds. Thank you for listening to the episode. Now let's get back to it. Thank you, future me, for providing that time code. Like I said, this is the spoiler section, so if you have not seen Barbarian, listen to what future me told you, skip to that part of the episode, or if you're in your car and you cannot safely do that, please pause the episode, move on to the next one. I've got many other episodes. Uh, follow me on Twitter at the movies underscore pod. And, you know, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that thing. And I'll see you next time. But for those of you that have seen Barbarian, here we fucking go. Okay, first off, this basement 
that she finds. For one, I love the mileage that Kreger gets out of reintroducing elements in the movie, like the closing basement door. That is just one of those little moments of simple uh, tension building. It's just a door closing and it's locked. But man, whenever you see that door start to come back into play in pivotal moments when they're being chased by fucking something, it is wild. You immediately, I find myself immediately gravitating to, holy shit, holy shit, grab that thing, grab the door. Little elements like that. Uh, she goes in the basement and finds this like, it's not even a secret door a la Scooby-Doo, like where you would like accidentally push a button or even in Batman where you like lift the bust of some guy's head and press the button and the fucking door case turns. No, it's like some nasty degraded rope just like leaking out of the wall and she's dragging this and that corridor is some pitch black darkness. Like the way that Kreger makes this door frame look as ominous as humanly possible, especially contrasted. I mean, it's the poster. It's this lady look standing in the doorway looking down like, holy shit, against the background, which is just a normal rundown house. It genuinely feels like you've entered another movie. And in a way, you have entered the other movie. Because by this point in the film, the movie sets up the idea that Bill Skarsgård is, you know, this is the red herring, that Bill Skarsgård is the creepy guy. And spoiler alert, he's not. He's not the creepy guy. And I love Skarsgård's performance because he balances so much between being like overly cautious, kind of weird. You can't totally trust him, but it turns out that he's just naturally a good guy. And especially given uh, her, I think her name is Tess in the movie. Let me double check that on IMDb but while I'm talking. But uh, while Tess is reflecting on her bad relationships and her abusive relationship you can tell that through her point of view which is how we're watching the movie that she will never really truly trust this guy uh yeah tess tess uh tess and keith keith is uh, scars guy's character but she will never trust this fucking dude like ever not fully even though like he's a band leader and even though they got drunk together or whatnot there's always this feeling at this point in the movie that like yeah he's might be up to some shady shit and this is the moment in the movie when you first see the mother just this it looks like something out of like that last paranormal activity movie that sucked balls but the character design the creature design was like freaky as hell you know this just emaciated you know like half this naked like creature looks like something out of the descent just camp comes by and murks him viciously in seconds now one of the parts of the movie I actually thought where the gore while it was really intense was shot in a way that you could totally tell that they were just putting like a watermelon with a like a or whatever they're putting like something with a wig on and just bashing it, it against the wall and letting the quick cuts and the uh, sort of like those black frames that flash pop up to kind of make you think that you're seeing someone's head get bashed in. It's really efficient gore in that sense. It's not quite the money shot of something like Scanners or even a more recent example would be like Midsommar, you know, something like that. But uh, once that happens and then the cut, 
to Justin Long in a fucking convertible singing Ricky Ticky Tabby Mongoose is one of the wildest fucking cuts I've seen in years. <laughs> and that's where this feeling of a novel comes in because it feels like we get up to a point where it is the pitch highest emotional investment. You're sitting there like, holy fuck, this is where we're going to find some shit out. And then we're going to cut and look at it from a completely different perspective and sort of approach a different approach to this movie. Because originally it was just going to be this couple and their sort of like intimate house weird drama that ends up turning into a real, this like thriller element essentially that turns straight up horror. And now we're going to approach it from Justin Long's point of view. And I like the juxtaposition of these two main characters. Tess being the primary main character who is leaving an abusive relationship. Her whole deal is that she it always goes back. You know, No matter what this person has done, she always finds herself returning to this person. And maybe thinking in vain that she can fix them or whatever reason. It's never truly... a laid out plain in the movie but then the opposite is justin long who's just just piece of shit you know he's accused of raping a woman his whole career goes to shit and justin long is one of those performers that plays douchebag so very well and at the beginning there is a part of me that's kind of like oh shit that sucks like this person was wrongly accused like that's crazy even moments when he's talking to his mom, he's like, I think I've earned the right to call her a fucking bitch if she's done blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, cool. And how quickly Craiger just removes you from any sympathy in that bar sequence when he's just explaining what actually happened. And you can understand how in his mind he wouldn't think it's rape, but also he should have known better. Like, regardless, you knew she wasn't fully into it, so you needed to stop. So, yeah, he totally did it. And at that point, all sympathy has gone out the window. It's a major douchebag to everybody. And when he finally goes to the house himself, I love the little details that are doled out. Like, oh, there hasn't been a tenant in weeks. Which immediately brings me back to that last moment of this crazy naked lady, emaciated and, like, fucked up, bashing this dude against the wall. Knowing that somehow either both people are dead or one of them being Tess has been there for weeks. And you sit there thinking, oh my god, like how did she survive? Like when are, when are we going to find out what happened to her? One of the funniest cuts in this fucking movie is when Justin Long finally goes down into the basement. Because all he's trying to do is sell the house for some quick cash so he can stay afloat past his rape trial. And he goes into the creepy basement. He goes into the corridor from hell. He goes into the room where he sees the mattress, a bucket, and a camera where sex acts under coercion have been performed. Or at least implied, because you take one look at that and you think sex dungeon. The best cut in the movie and the funniest joke to me is he... He sees that, cuts to him on his computer going, can I list underground footage as square footage in a real estate listing? And I laughed so fucking hard at that because he is such an oblivious, egotistical, selfish piece of shit 
that of course he would look at that and it wouldn't even phase him. Like decent people. I, I love how this plays off an earlier moment in the movie when she first goes down and sees that shit, sees it for what it is, tells Keith upstairs and he doubts her. But he has a legitimate reason for doubting her because he doesn't know what she's actually seen. At least he's oblivious. Justin Long is fucking there. He knows what went down. And he's still like, oh, well, yeah, whatever. It's a fixer-up. Like, we're going to clean this shit. We're going to take a flashlight down into the creepy hell basement. And so it diffuses that moment of super high tension so well to have a buffoon just going into your creepy house. It is like watching Scooby-Doo if Shaggy were a complete piece of shit and just scrolling down without a fucking care in the world. And then, of course, the movie reveals itself. He falls in the pit. You realize that uh, this lady wants to, like, mother the people that she captures. And it's like, these, are, these aren't just, like, little hallways in a house, right? This isn't just something that connects room to room. They're like caverns. It reminds me of, like, As Above, So Below. Like, catacomb levels of, like, these dirt tunnels. Like, I'm pretty sure I've seen the Criminal Minds episode regarding this. And uh, it, it is, but even then in the Criminal Minds episode, it was sort of pristine and modern. This is so grungy and it feels like you are literally entering a level of hell. He's falling in this pit. There's this corroded metal gate that lands. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, I'm sorry, weren't we in like 2022, 2023 even? Like, where the fuck are we that this kind of architecture exists? She has the baby bottle that she wants him to drink out of. And that's when we find Tess, who has adapted completely to the situation, understands what she wants, uh, what the mother, we call the movie, the mother, wants her to do and goes for it. And so throughout this experience of dealing with the mother and ultimately Justin Long escaping, finding Frank, who I'll, I guess, mention a little bit more later finding them dealing with all this you see this dichotomy of people when it comes to folks who deal with abuse or being the abuser because you could say Justin Long's the abuser and she's the one who's been abused there is this nature of if you're going to survive a situation like this you have to adapt or die you have to change who you are you have to change how you approach a scenario in order to make it through and on one hand yeah that's what Tess is doing she's totally adapting this situation and one of the things that I thought was weird at first, but it kind of made more sense that it moved on, was like, why is she constantly going back to the house? Even when she breaks out, she is consistently trying to get people to go back. She's convincing the cops who don't listen to her because at this point she looks like just another, I guess, uh, last vestige of the old world of this neighborhood that got decayed by time and inattention and crime and uh, vandalism the gentrification of the city you know there are two different types of detroit that we see in this movie one being the very modest home the small town community that has been ransacked i mean for some reason it's one of the big things in the opening of the movie where you see the house for the first time it is the only house on the street that's not fucked up at all like everywhere else obviously has had squatters in it has graffiti vandalism everywhere but this house is immaculate which is already sort of like an unnerving, puts question marks floating in a bubble over my head. But then on top of that, 
the next type of home or type of Detroit you see is just urbanization, modern buildings, glass windows, all pristine. That's where Tess goes for a job interview. And that's obviously the way of the future. That is where Detroit is going. So seeing the sort of destruction of this neighborhood, of course the cops don't give a shit about what she has to say. They just think she's crazy. Because again, she's been covered in dirt and shit for two fucking weeks. Now, uh, seeing all of that made me think, like, why do you want to go back? There is a part of me that's like, oh, this is a learned behavior from abuse. She just goes back to what is familiar because she's scared to go out on her own. But it wasn't easy to say that because it wasn't that, uh, like, this, these are completely different scenarios. That's not like a personality trait that would carry on in these two scenarios to me. It really just is that when the shit hits the fan, she is just by nature kind of good. There's this line that Justin Long has where he's sort of apologizing about all of the shit that he's done. Partially, in the moment, it's in relation to dealing with uh, the mother when they finally break out of the house. But in also, it's in reference to his rape, which he knows that he's done and he needs to make amends for, or try to make amends for. And he's saying something like, I don't know if I'm a bad person or a good person who did a bad thing, but I know I want to fix it. It's all lip service. And then at the very end, when they're on top of the water tower and he throws Tess off, AJ, uh, the Justin Long character, that's sort of the Zach Kreger's like, nail in the coffin of like, no, no, no you've always been a piece of shit and you're not really repentant at all. You're just trying to save your own ass. And that's what kind of separates these people. There are good people who do bad things. There are good people who fuck up and fix themselves, but ultimately their actions show it. No amount of lip service is going to do it. And that is one of the themes that I thought really held strong in this is just the ultimate difference between somebody like Tess and somebody like AJ who will take these crazy situations and change who they are through their actions in order to get out of it. And when it comes to him, he's just going to do the same selfish shit that he's always done. So ultimately, it's sort of that nature versus nurture thing. And I think Craig is saying that nature ultimately takes over and wins. I love that this is a movie that the big baddie of it really isn't the villain but themselves a victim because of that weird just oh god and you want to talk about somebody who's really taking the movie by the horns it's that uh i love the twist when it comes to uh the homeless gentleman uh man come on i need this imdb to load because i need to shout this guy out but uh this homeless guy who originally scares the shit out of her when she first tries to enter the house because she realizes that she's in a bad neighborhood, like a really, really bad neighborhood. But then later, it turns out to be the one that saves her. They show up to the water tower to hang out. And this guy's like, look, they've been doing some crazy shit for 40 years, Frank. And I love that the flashback sequence, inevitably, whenever Justin Long and Tess, uh, I think, break out, or they're trying to break out for the first time, it cuts to Frank in the 80s setting up this really fucking fucked sex dungeon and it's all shot in technicolor it's shot like in the 1980s you know he's got like 
He's scoping out houses and women that he may want to use for his sex acts. And ultimately, this guy says, like, look, he's been he's been making babies with those women. And he's been making babies with the babies. And you make a copy of a copy of a copy. And then suddenly, you come out with something that is just disturbed. And it's a product of incest. And it's damaged in that sense. And just the way that this creature ultimately comes out uh, James Butler playing Andre man that dude is really good but uh, the way this creature comes out is ultimately a victim of Frank's real crime which is just that he's his perversions and his immorality that kind of shit even though she's out there like beating people into walls it's literally all she's ever been bred and known to do is mother others for Frank's uh, benefit. And man, that sequence when you do see Frank after like 40 years just lying in this bed and he's coughing the kind of cough that is just pounds and pounds of dirt and grime and disease festering. Like he didn't even fucking, he barely furnished his basement. It's all just dirt around him. It's sort of like he's burying himself in the past. And the the sound work whenever he coughs just send like the ink down my spine. Fucking gross. Uh, hell, even Justin Long showing up there. The look on his face when he sees those videotapes. And we don't have to see what's on the videotapes to know that it's some fucked up shit. And the variety of fucked up shit there is. And the way he doesn't even give some of the victims names. He just kind of like describes them by their character traits. I think there's one that says like that blind one or something like that. It's just disgusting to humanist uh, details that really kind of sell the depravity of this. Without ever really needing to go into full like torture porn areas so to speak. A very smart choice I found there. Uh Frank killing himself because at a certain point you've gone so deep into the darkness that like what else is there it just fucking shoot himself long has the gun and we go on from there there's so much stuff with this thing I found it funny that in the 1980s flashback they're talking about how uh Doug the <laughs> Frank's neighbor who's played by uh Kurt Braunohler He's uh, talking about how the wife is saying the neighborhood's going to hell. And it's funny because we know the neighborhood, what it looks like in 40 years, and it really has gone to hell at that point. But there was a part of me that I was thinking, wow. you know, I think it was a line that he said where the wife wants to leave the neighborhood now because she knows that if they wait till next year, she might not. And I don't know whether that's a reference to the housing market collapsing. I don't know if that I don't know if the 1980s had a house market collapse that I needed to know about before I went to go see this thing, or if she's talking about like maybe she knows that people have gone missing in the neighborhood, and maybe she thinks that she's next, so she needs to get the fuck out. It's the kind of stuff that really makes a good double feature, like with the black phone. That kind of like you can't trust the community and the community is being sort of taken out one by one. It's like a, a herd of sheep being and having a wolf snipe them one by one. That kind of thing. And 
I love little double entendres like that. Uh, even in the opening of the movie, the opening shot gives you this idea of layers where it just rises from the darkness of the ground and shows you the house. So you already have this sort of visual idea of you're going to be going underground and up, and there's the above ground already there. I think she pans over as soon as she uh, wakes up from her first night in the house, looks outside. One of the, the graffitied houses says death from below. And again, another little Easter egg that it's giving you these little nuggets of like, you have to think about the idea of the ground below. And in my mind, it was like the layer of the old world, that this was sort of this small town neighborhood and ultimately time just took it over. And the people that are left behind, in Frank's case, just buried himself in it. Like he kept himself in that understanding, in that house. I guess partially just because of the depraved shit that he was doing. And I guess now that he's bred his daughter, I don't even know how many generations you can get through with this kind of plan. If it's 40 years, uh, I don't even want to think about it. It could be granddaughter. It could be great granddaughter at a weird fucked up. I don't fucking know. Either way, relative, knowing that he's sending her out to potentially like kidnap folks, or maybe he's just like, I don't, I don't know how this thing's going down. I just know that it's going down. It is fucking terrifying. It's sort of like they're, it's the last vestiges of the old world, the old way of living in Detroit coming to kind of like attack the new world and absorb it in and sort of bury it with it. Keep it alive, like suck the energy out in order to keep a vampire alive. You know what I'm saying? Kind of that deal. I don't know if that's what they were going for. Uh, one of the details that I thought was really funny is that when they're in the water tower and Andre has that sort of pivotal moment when he's talking about, like, when uh, Tess asks him, how do you know that you're safe in here from her? He's like, well, I've been living here for 15 years and she ain't ever been in this motherfucker. To immediately have that motherfucker break through the wall, grab him, kill him via Mortal Kombat fatality, rip his own fucking arm off and beat him with it like a wet noodle, you know, that kind of shit. I found that detail of 15 years funny because I've come to believe that this movie takes place in real time, which would be like 2022, 2021. 15 years ago would have been 2006, 2007, which is basically what I'm thinking is the housing market crash. That this guy had sort of been, or at least the beginning of the depression, the Great Recession, when everybody was losing jobs and it would make sense that he got sort of abandoned in that regard had to resort to living without a home or a house and live in the water tower. And what's funny is that sort of understanding of just the way time works that, oh yeah, he thinks because he's been there 15 years, like he has some entitlement or ownership to that land. Uh, Justin Long thinks that because he owns the house that it's his and Andre has a great line where he's like, your, may, your name may be on the paper, but that's her daddy's house. The stories, the people that lived in these houses, in these dwellings, they are the ones that inhabit it. You cannot destroy that history. And I don't know if that's a commentary on just the housing market and gentrification as a whole. I mean, I found it funny that this is an Airbnb movie in a time when people are buying properties exclusively for Airbnb maintenance it's just their side home uh this sort of talk about landlords being in the news and 
uh, people kind of railing against landlords and the sort of argument of like, well, this is their, how are they supposed to pay their mortgage? I'm like, landlord isn't a real job. You just own a piece of property and are making somebody else pay for it. That type of shit where the housing market has skyrocketed in price because the supply is being bought out by these property management companies that are just holding on to properties and letting that natural, uh, I guess, escrow grow over time before eventually flipping it for whatever kind of profit they want or just holding on to it because the escrow that you get just makes your company more valuable the housing market is fucked essentially and it's going away from this idea of the home being something of a personal dwelling and more of an investment property it's the difference between a home and an investment property that i think this movie is railing against and using different uh, different stories to kind of get that message across. And doing so in a really fucked up horror movie way because, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, some of the suspension of disbelief kind of snapped for me a couple times. Because if I'm to believe that this person who's the mother is not any real superhuman powered being and is just a product of incest... I don't know how there are so many like moments when they hit her with a car or she falls off the water tower and she's not immediately dead, especially emaciated and ill-nourished as she is, looks. No, that might be it. And that kind of stuff, I was like, all right, movie, whatever. I'll let you swing by it because it's a horror movie or whatnot. But uh, yeah, that's a couple things that kind of threw me off guard. That's also... Uh, I guess that's just a horror movie thing in general. I mean, I do like the gore that we get. Again, beating uh, Andre with his wet noodle arm is funny as shit just because of Mortal Kombat. Whenever Justin Long gets it and they split his head open, that sort of shot in shadow and you only really see the back of his head split open, focusing a lot of the light on the mother and her reaction as she's tearing that uh, head apart through the eyes. You know, it's almost like you're reaching. You remember that part in Lion King when Rafiki cracks that fruit open in the sky and he just digs his fingers in and cracks it open? It's kind of what Justin Long's head reminds me of. Uh, that part is pretty cool. Uh, whenever, uh, whenever Tess at the end finally shoots the mother, that sequence to me is just so heartbreaking. You know, that's a part of the movie, I guess, because they both recognize themselves in that moment. She really does in that moment sort of form a bond with Tess, or she wants to form a bond to her, to this mother. That's her child, and her child's in pain, so she's not going to move the, her back to the basement. And at that point, uh, Tess is sitting there, and I think she recognizes that you really were a victim in all this. And when she shoots her in the head, I almost think it's sort of like an act of mercy and just of a truly like remorseful for having to do it. Cause I mean, if she gets up and goes away, there's no way the mother's going to let her go. And so that kind of, it just has to happen. It just has to happen. It's really, really sad. And so I find that last shot of her walking away towards the city, the idea of the future away from sort of the old world and its damaged stories and that sort of thing 
on one hand, it kind of just shows that, yeah, she is hopeful. She's moving forward into the future. But it's also her finally not looking back. It's her character arc is completed. She's been in a toxic situation. She's been in multiple toxic situations. And now she's fully decided that, yeah, I'm living for myself. I'm taking care of myself, putting myself first, and moving on into the future, knowing that I can, if I can survive this, I've survived anything. So on that one hand, that's where the movie's going, that character arc of like surviving abuse, so to speak. And on the other hand, there's just, I guess, the way of the world, like the new world will take over the old. And while there is uh, a risk of people sort of like abandoning the communities and cultures of the past, in order to just build investment properties and not really give a shit about who or what lived there, who lived there and what happened. Uh, I do think this movie is sort of railing against that, but uh, I also understand that it knows that sort of wave is inevitable. And so it's like a bittersweet moment. It's a bittersweet movie. I found myself thinking about a lot of stuff with this thing. And while it's not, like, the scariest horror movie, and while it's not the goriest horror movie, or, like, really wow, mind-blowing horror movie, I just found myself consistently thinking back on it, trying to piece more together. It's one of those movies that I feel is going to grow a lot with subsequent viewings. So, yeah, if you have not seen Barbarian, I would definitely recommend you do so. It's on HBO Max right now. It's on Redbox, it's on Blu-ray, I think. So you'll be able to find it in some way, shape, or form. And I do think it's a solid movie, and I definitely recommend it. Thank you very much for listening. Before I go, I want to mention that the reason I'm doing this episode, and I had interest in this movie since the fucking poster in, like, like June. I saw the poster, I'm like, ooh, Barbarian, that's a cool title for a movie. I'm like, ah, oh, I should probably watch that. And then September rolled around. I'm like, oh, the movie's out. I should probably go watch that for the podcast. And then everybody said, oh, wow, you got to go in blind. You can't be spoiled on this movie. I'm like, oh, man, I really do have to go see this movie. And then like months later, HBO. Oh, HBO's out. Wow, I can finally sit at home and not be spoiled and watch this movie. Then inevitably I got fucking spoiled for the movie. And I was like, damn, I got spoiled for this movie just a little bit. I really need to go and watch this Barbarian movie. And it did not take until February 19th, where my wife gave me her Valentine's Day gift. It was belated. It's a cameo from Laura Jane Grace, the singer-songwriter of a band called Against Me, one of my favorite bands. It was a great punk, punk band from Florida. And Laura Jane Grace is an artist whom I and a songwriter who's just written the kind of songs that pump me up, that kind of keep me moving. You know, when I feel like I've had a really fucking shit day and just feel like giving up, you know, Walking is Still Honest from uh, their first record, Reinventing Axl Rose, that keeps me going. I think about a song like Two Coffins and it makes me just think of how beautiful it is to be a father, you know. And... There's uh, so many songs like that that she's written that just kind of kept me going and like giving me hope and giving me strength whenever I needed it. So to get a cameo, a message from her while she's working on her new album, 
And she, you know, it just, it blew my fucking mind. Like, I had this playing while I was at work. I was at work, I was going to lunch and watching this message, and, like, next door to my job is, like, this restaurant. And so I had to sit down, like, outside of the restaurant and just stare at this phone, like, oh, shit. Like, this is really happening. And in it, my wife had mentioned to her that I have a podcast. She mentioned that and said, hey, by the way, if you haven't done this episode on this movie called The Barbarian, (laughs) you should do it. It's a really great horror movie. So when Laura Jane Grace tells you to fucking review a movie, you fucking review a movie. And that leads into the song that I want to play the episode out on. One of the songs that my wife and I bonded over is by Against Me. It is called Ache With Me. It's one of the most like romantic songs I've ever heard, specifically about just like day-to-day struggle of being, you know, an adult and like finding solace and comfort in somebody else who can sort of share that pain with you. And, uh, I won't play any of like the cameo, but like Laura described that song in a way that really hit personally for me. Uh, I think she mentioned this, and I guess I can mention it now. Uh, my wife told Laura that she's pregnant again. I'm gonna be dad for the second time, and Laura mentioned the story about this particular song and in relation to pregnancy, and that to me just gave this song a whole other meaning and it's just it's one of my favorite songs of all time so i'm gonna play this out for you guys and gals and uh what's uh i've been listening to this podcast called horror hangover and they said uh gals ghouls and uh badass days of the world to all of you this is uh ache with me by uh against me and for laura if you're listening a million thanks for the recommendation, and I thank you so much for just your music. It's got me through a lot. And also the message, because holy shit, that's like mind-blowing to me still. But all right, friends, I'm going to let y'all go. Y'all take care. If you want to follow me, do so at the Movies Pod on Twitter. Uh, movies underscore pod on Twitter. Movies Pod on The Movies Pod on Instagram. Everything is in the description below. Until next time, my friends, y'all take care. I walk down high streets, looking through windows. I've been lost in crowds of strangers. Citrus shops and cosmetic dolls. Phone books, one ass, bus stops and libraries. Newspaper headlines, mannequin faces, television stations. There were advertisements. Echoes in the back of my mind. I see your face when I close my eyes. Do you share the same sense of defeat? Have you realized all the things you'll never be? Appeals turn to resentment. Open minds close up with cynicism. I've got no judgment for you. Come on and ache with me Come on and ache with me